Hey, hey guys, uh, Nevin Adams uh, of the Nevin and Fred podcast. As I told you, we we're going to have a part two to our live podcast episode at the NASA NAPA ERISA 403B conference in Washington, D.C. We're going to close things out on a highlight. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the other implications with regard to Secure 2.0 and 403B plans, but we're also going to shift our focus to litigation. And there has certainly been a lot of uh, litigation in the 403B space, particularly as it relates to university plans. But um, hey, check it out. Take a listen. So Nevin, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about some 403B litigation. You all know I like litigation, right? Not like litigation, but like reading litigation, like writing about litigation, like the fact that I won't be the one getting sued about this stuff. so if you've read anything that's on NAPANET, some of the stuff on NAPANET, you know that I mean, this has kind of like become my thing. Uh, Ted Godbout has called me our chief le- legal correspondent, which is kind of what I've fallen into in, uh, in retirement. But there are a lot of cases that are leading precedents for the retirement industry overall that actually are uh, ERISA 403B clients. They're mostly on the university side just because the plans themselves are so big. And... Um, and so Fred and I have talked about some of these before, but I just kind of wanted to, to footnote a couple of them because of the, the precedent they kind of set for things. Um, I guess the one I'd start with is the one with Yale University. Ah, Yale University. Yale, yes. Uh, Schlichter case, uh, most of the ones that are really kind of get into innovative, creative things really are the Schlichter firm. However you feel about Jerry Schlichter and what he does, he's, he's at least, unlike a lot of these other ambulance chasers, uh, is thoughtful about this. And the Yale case is kind of interesting in some ways because um, he petitioned to get a jury trial and got an actual jury trial. Pretty amazing. And if you ever thought to yourself, I wonder if that would be good or bad, um, I don't, well, let's put it this way. Yale University won the uh, case. And do you remember, you want to go through the rest sure. of the, Fred's got the actual, what it was. <laughs> this- The moral of the story is the only reason that juries work is because they're better than the next best thing. (laughs) Um, There were questions that the judge put in writing to the jury and they had to make decisions on. Uh, And I'm gonna go through a couple of those with you and here we go. Uh, Question one, have the plaintiffs, meaning Jerry Schlichter's clients, proven by a preponderance of the evidence that the defendants, meaning the fiduciaries of the Yale plan, breached their duty of prudence by allowing unreasonable record keeping and administrative fees to be charged to participants in the plan. And the answer? And the jury said, yes. Aha. So you're sitting there saying, wait, Nevin, I thought you said they won. Aha. (laughs) As I said, aha. Question number two, did the plaintiffs, uh, have the plaintiffs proven by a preponderance of the evidence that the defendant's breach of fiduciary duty resulted in a loss to the plan? Yes, the jury said. So again, Nevin, I thought you said they won. What the heck? Next, if the answer, if your answer is yes, that they proved that it produced, that it resulted in a loss to the plan, how much was the loss? And the answer is? Zero. (laughs) Next question. Have the defendants proven by a preponderance of the evidence that a fiduciary following a prudent process 
could have made the same decision about having, agreeing to, excessive record-keeping and administrative fees as the defendants, Yale, did? The answer is yes. What? What? What do you mean? How, are you saying that all fiduciaries of all plans are paying excessive administrative fees? Of zero. Of zero. <laughs> but, but we don't know what that means. These are not logical answers. <laughs> you cannot have excessive fees and have the result be zero. That's conceptually impossible. It may come as a shock to you that Jerry Schlichter says he plans to appeal this case. <laughs> but I, I, it's amazing. I mean, that's real, but I, it's not a script for a TV comedy. That is real. Um, I don't get it. Honestly, don't. I mean, I, I were, Nevin and I are covering this because we think it's goofy and it gives you an idea of some of the strange things that happen, but this can't be the norm. How can the judge accept such a, such a result? Yes, they're paying excessive fees and the fees are zero. I would think the judge would say, wait a minute, folks, that's inconsistent. But I guess they didn't. Yeah, not so far anyway. It's, uh, if the jury couldn't get to a number, then yeah. they're like, crap, we got to put something down. It's zero. It's zero. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of crazy. Anyway, um, I think that's the only jury trial we've had in this space so far. And Daniel, I don't know. I mean, the rumor I heard is it cost, has cost, in terms of the getting to trial thing, cost Yale like $15 million to get to that. So you, even when you win, um, it's not cheap. Um, so oh, anyway... Yeah. It could very easily, I mean, even if you get dismissed early, it could be two to five million dollars. Well, and, and all the slickers, they go like 10 years. I mean, unlike some of these that are getting like a settlement, like within a year even now, it's kind of crazy. It's, it's gotten to be kind of a, a lottery type thing, but Schlichter's he hangs in there. And, um, and I think this was like a nine year, nine year to trial kind of thing. And that's not unusual for him. Um, I want to... I would say just real quickly for... These university cases, by and large, and, and there are two major claims. Number one is that the overly expensive share classes of investments are being included in the plan, that the fiduciaries didn't get either the lowest share cost, uh, cost share class, or, uh, I mean, it, the, the, that's what they allege. But the other thing would be, well, you got a share class that pays revenue sharing, and the revenue sharing paid the expenses of the plan. Um, but then you get to the second claim, which is the, the fees for revenue sharing were excessive. And that takes into account both, uh, the fees for record keeping were excessive. And that takes into account both the direct pay for record keeping and the revenue sharing that the record keeper got. So if you had to focus on two things in light of all these cases, one would be, do we have the right share class in the plan? Uh, with a clean share class of some kind being the easiest to defend. may not be the best for the plan, but the easiest to defend. And then the second being, are we regularly benchmarking the record keeper to make sure the fees are reasonable relative to similarly situated plans? Those are the two big issues. Anyway. Well, was that going to, because we are kind of running out of time, and I don't want to, like, run out of time. I will just, as a footnote, noticed uh, that a lot of the cases that are showing up even in the 401k world are turning back and looking back to what was a 403b case, that involving Northwestern University. Um, and, and it is, 
I would, and my read on this is it's being inconsistently applied in terms of under, uh, deciding whether the case made by the plaintiffs is enough to go past the motion to dismiss, to go, you know, because you file your suit and then the other party that's being sued files a motion to dismiss, basically saying you haven't established enough reality here to go to try to waste everybody's time and go to trial. And those cases, I mean, it's it's about 50-50 whether they're being actually dismissed at that stage or whether they're allowed to go on to the next stage. But um, but that whole process and that threshold is everybody's looking back because it was a Supreme Court case in the Northwestern University, and the districts do seem to be applying what I read to me anyway different standards for what's enough. But but it's important in this context because it was an ERISA 403B case. It was a Schlichter case. It did go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And it's continuing to set precedent for the entire industry. So it's definitely something worth to keep an eye on. But, um, but in that context, there's Fred's favorite case. <laughs> Very which, quickly, yeah, the, the, the Northwestern had hundreds of investments in their plan. And the Supreme Court decision, among other things, said you have to monitor all the designated investments in the plan. So, I mean, you can imagine how much work that would be every well, quarter. The, the theory monitor. that the defendants presented was, as long as there are some good funds in here, it's okay if there are some not so good funds in there, right? <laughs> it's, about, it's about giving choice, and, you, and particularly in the large university plans, um, arguably in the 403B universe generally, it, I think there's long been a tradition of saying, our job here is to, to give people choices, and, and that's what it's really all about. And, um, but in yeah. the RISA context. They, the, and I'm the, these are basically fiduciary training slides. And if you want them, email me and I'll give them to so you. So you get out. some additional CE credit here. But, but <laughs> I encourage you to do fiduciary training for plan committees. And uh, there are actually settlements and cases that comment on it favorably. But this is NYU, the NYU case. This is the judge's opinion. Uh, talking about the chairwoman of the plan committee. Her testimony was concerning. She made it clear that she viewed her role primarily with scheduling, paper movement, and logistics. Uh, she appeared to believe it was sufficient to have relied rather blindly on the plan advisor and just uh, accepting whatever the advisor said. As a matter of law, blind reliance is inappropriate. That's the chairwoman who didn't basically realize what a fiduciary was. She of a multi-billion dollar plan. The court also found that the testimony of another committee member was disturbing because she was some similarly unfamiliar with the basic concepts of the plan. When asked about her inability to remember plan details, she responded that she has a big job, talking about her human resources position, not her committee work, uh, and that her role on the committee was just one of many responsibilities. The judge said this suggested she does not view herself as having adequate time to serve effectively on the committee, yet she stayed on the committee. Um, so NYU lost the case, right? No. no they, they actually won the case. Why? Two other committee members, uh, including the, the uh, uh, oh, what was it? CIO. The CIO, the chief investment officer, met with the advisor, went over the reports, read them, asked questions. And sort of the point of the case was having an investment consultant is an indicator of engaging in a prudent process. Uh, engaging with the investment consultant or advisor, asking them questions. While as an advisor, 
It may make you feel like you're on top of the world when the client puts you on a pedestal and says, you're so smart, you know all this stuff, I think you're great. Just tell us what to do. That's called a 338. That's a discretionary investment advisor. If you're serving as a non-discretionary 321 investment advisor, then your job is to educate the committee. Their job is to become educated. Whatever recommendation you make, they have to say, I take that recommendation, I consider that recommendation, and I adopt that recommendation after, thought, after thinking about it. They cannot rely blindly on their advisors. So I left out some of the pithy quotes, but I've got five or six slides on that. And whatever you can do, you're the expert in the room on investments. Whatever you can do to engage the committee members, to get them to ask you questions, to, to ask them if they understand some of the terminology you're using. Do you know what an expense ratio is? Do you know what a share class is? Make sure they get that kind of fiduciary education from you so that they can do a compliant job for themselves. Uh, in other words, so that they can satisfy the mom role. Uh, so there, there you go. And what better note to close on than the mom rule? Um, we are at time. Uh, thank you all, really, for sticking around for the live version of the Nevin and Fred and Kelly podcast. Hope you all have a great day.